Do some of you recall a time where instead of shopping online at eBay or Amazon, you actually had to go to a store, a department store, and look at the price tags? Well, I heard a story about a break-in at one of these stores many years ago. Now, I don't know if this is a true story or not. Let's just say it should be true and leave it at that. The story goes that this person broke into the department store, as sometimes happened, in the middle of the night, but this intruder did not take anything. Instead, he spent the next several hours simply switching the price tag of every item that he could. And when the store opened in the morning, all the items were in the same spot, but their prices had all been changed. So now a sofa was half the price of a small lamp. A pack of handkerchiefs cost less than a new suit. An oven was less expensive than a fry pan. For at least a few hours, some people got outrageous deals, while others spent a lot more than they should have for what they bought. I think of that story when I read the Beatitudes. For it's almost like Jesus is telling us that someone has come in and switched the price tags on all the things that we value and don't value in this world. He's telling us that power and wealth and success and independence are worthless, while their opposites are valuable beyond compare. The Beatitudes are the first section on the Sermon of the Mount, or what I like to call the King's Sermon, because the whole sermon is about this kingdom of heaven that Jesus is bringing in. The Beatitudes stand as gatekeepers to the sermon, describing not only what is valuable and worthless in this kingdom, but also what we have to choose to enter in this kingdom. These are recorded in Matthew chapter 5. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So let's talk about these Beatitudes and how they're tied into the rest of the King's speech before we dive into the first two of these. The word Beatitude is simply a Latin word that means blessing. Eight times Jesus pronounces blessing on certain kinds of people in this kingdom. But what exactly does it mean that we are called to be, that we are blessed? 
Well, the shortest and easiest way to think about this is simply the word happiness. The blessed person is the happy person. And that's why some English versions even go so far as to translate this, how, how happy are the poor in spirit, how happy are the meek. And indeed, God does desire our happiness. As parents, we desire that for the people we love, especially our children, right? God desires our happiness. He's telling us what it's like for us to be in this state of happiness. But, but there's a problem here in our understanding, and it's this. We tend to think of happiness as an emotion, something we feel, something that's fleeting. Well, Jesus is describing, rather, a state of being. It's an objective thing, like being male or female, married or unmarried. Jesus is declaring more than we will feel happy, for example, if we are meek. Rather, he is telling us that in this eternal kingdom, poverty of spirit and meekness are the true treasures, and that the person who has them has it made. Think of it this way. If money were the only thing that mattered or the thing that mattered most, then who would be the blessed person? Well, the richest person. If success were the only thing that mattered or the thing that mattered most, who would be the most blessed? It would be the person who had the highest achievement in sports or business or, or wherever. If looks or image were the only things that mattered, then the blessed person would be the most beautiful person. But they're not. What Jesus is doing, he's switching back the price tags. In the true kingdom, he says, in the coming kingdom, the eternal kingdom, the only kingdom that will matter, it is the blessed, it is the mourners, it is the pure in heart, and so on, who are blessed, and only them. So this is about your happiness. God desires that out of love for you. But since you are in a spiritual and an eternal being, the kind of happiness Jesus is talking about is a spiritual and eternal kind of happiness, one that comes through his kingdom. And since that kingdom is different than the present kingdom that we are in, then we're going to have to be a different kind of person in order to enter in and to enjoy and flourish in that kingdom. The Beatitudes, then, are Jesus' declaration of blessing. There are two sides to them. First, the dominant idea is they are good news. Jesus is declaring the good news of the kingdom. The kingdom is real, and it brings real, eternal, perfect happiness to those who are in this kingdom. But the other side of, the, of this is that it's also implicitly a, a rebuke, or at least a challenge to us, because it forces the question, these Beatitudes force the question of whether we right now are valuing and chasing and treasuring that kingdom, this coming kingdom, with its kind of righteousness, or whether we're valuing and chasing and treasuring the values of this present doomed kingdom. Now, for this morning, we're going to look at the first of these two Beatitudes. All eight of them tie in together. You see the first and the last both have the same reward, as it were, or the same explanation, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So these are all tied tightly together into the kingdom theme, as well as into each other. They're kind of like a, a pearl of eight necklaces. You, you don't really want to separate them. There's a certain logical temporal progression in them. But for the sake of time, we're going to focus on the first two. 
because we want to make sure that we understand the whole thing by understanding the basis, the, the start. And that's the first two of the Beatitudes. First, we are told, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's make this more direct. You are blessed. You are eternally blessed, happy, fortunate, God approved. If you have poverty of spirit, because for you is the kingdom of heaven. Notice, Jesus is not talking here simply about those who are financially poor. Financially, financial poverty can lead to poverty of spirit, and that's why Jesus had more followers among the poor than among the powerful. But it does, doesn't always do so, right? A homeless person can be quite proud in spirit, while a wealthy person could conceivably be humble. In the context of the rest of the Beatitudes and the teaching of Jesus more broadly, the main ideas behind the phrase poor in spirit seem to be these. Number one, a sense of personal unworthiness before God. Two, a sense of moral uncleanness before God. Three, a sense of spiritual bankruptcy before God. And then fourth, a sense of deeply needing God's grace for any of this to change. A sense of personal unworthiness before God, a sense of moral uncleanness before God, a sense of spiritual bankruptcy, bankruptcy before God, and a deep sense of knowing that God is going to have to be the one to change because I'm not powerful enough to do it on my own. Now, the reason I say a sense of power, powerlessness, a sense of bankruptcy, a sense of uh, moral uncleanness is that objectively speaking, everyone is poor in spirit. We're all sinners. None of us are good enough. Everybody, whether they sense it or not, is powerless without God and bankrupt and helpless and unclean before this holy God. But not everyone is blessed. Because here's the catch. We don't like to admit our bankruptcy. We don't like to admit our need and our inner brokenness. An author I was reading recently he wrote about a time he spoke to a group of students at InterVarsity. And one of the students asked him a very common question afterwards. He said, isn't Christianity a crutch for people who can't make it on their own? And this author wrote, my answer was, was very simple. Yes, period. What's bad about a crutch? I mean, we don't normally look at a crutch and say, oh, that's a, a bad thing. It's, it's a thing that people need. Why does a crutch become a bad thing when it's about Christianity? And I think the answer most critics would give is this. If Christianity is a crutch, then it's only good for cripples. But here's the rub. We don't like to see ourselves as cripples. It's offensive to our self-sufficiency to label Christianity as a crutch when we know we need it. But remember what Jesus said. Those who are well don't need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. In other words, the only people who will ever get what Jesus has to give are sick people, people who know they're spiritually and morally crippled and come to him for healing. I mean, think about that idea that if Christianity is a crutch, therefore it's undesirable. Why? Why would someone think that? Well, again, the answer is, that we seem to have the confidence that we're not cripples. 
and that real joy and fulfillment in life are to be found in the pursuit of self-confidence and self-determination and self-reliance and self-esteem. And this is at the heart of why Jesus was rejected by so many, even among the religious. For religion, too, can be perverted into a way that we try to fix ourselves and feel better about ourselves through our own works and efforts. Why are the poor in spirit blessed? Because it is to them that the kingdom is given. In the original Greek, the language is quite emphatic. To them and them alone is the kingdom is given. The self-made need not apply. Jesus illustrates this thought later on in a passage in Luke chapter 12. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. One man went home justified. One man was given an admittance ticket to the kingdom of heaven. One man received the promise that he would be part of a new humanity, partnering with God in this perfect creation. And it wasn't, it wasn't the religious success story It was the one who simply recognized his own spiritual and moral bankruptcy before God, beat his breast, mourning his failure, and said, God, have mercy on me. That serves as a very good introduction, by the way, to the second beatitude, blessed are those who mourn. For I view it as, if not the flip side of the the first, perhaps it's continuation. It's one thing to know you are a spiritual failure. It's another to mourn over it. Now, I stand in a long, long line of church history and and teachers in the church in understanding mourning here, not simply to be a general mourning over the pains and losses in this life. Everyone mourns the things we lose in this life, the things that are painful, but not everyone is declared blessed. The mourning Jesus speaks of flows from and is an expression of knowing our poverty of spirit and bewailing our sin, but also the sin and the brokenness and evil of this world. It is mourning with God over all that's broken. And that's why it's so appropriate to take the first and second Beatitudes together. Blessed are those who mourn clarifies what it means to be those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit who mourn. Blessed are the people 
who feel keenly their own inadequacies and their guilt and their failures and their helplessness and their unworthiness and their emptiness and who don't try to hide these things under a cloak of self-sufficiency, but who are honest about them and grieved before them and driven to the grace of God. What is mourning? Mourning is simply an emotional response to sorrow and sadness. It is a response indicating that something is not what it should be. And we're grieved that it's not. Mourning is a sign that something is wrong with the situation. But it's also a sign that there's something right with the one doing the mourning. Think of it this way. If a man is married to a woman for 40 years and they had this great marriage and all of a sudden she dies and he doesn't mourn at all, but instead goes through his life as if nothing happened or even worse, like he had just won the lottery, wouldn't you think there was something wrong with that man, with his head or with his heart? And so it is with us. Mourning is a sign of something wrong with the situation, but it's a sign that we recognize that. And that is a good thing. It's those who have their eyes open to see the brokenness and rawness of their own lives who mourn. And those whose eyes are open to the pain and brokenness of this world, who don't try to paper it over and minimize it, they mourn. Again, mourning is a response indicating that we know something is not what it should be and that it grieves us. But God has an answer to mourning. It's not to deny mourning. It's not to try to paper it over with entertainment and amusement. It's not letting it harden into cynicism, but to bring in his kingdom. The kingdom of God is his answer to mourning. It's how he comforts those who mourn. How does the kingdom become the way that he comforts us? Well, first, we are comforted by the fact that he forgives us. Is there a joy or a peace greater than knowing when a time where you have completely blown it, that after you've repented and come to God, you are more completely forgiven, that his grace is so much greater than your sin? That is a comfort and a joy. This is the kingdom of grace. We don't try to have to earn back what we've done wrong. We simply receive his grace and are comforted by it. God's grace is bigger than my sin or your sin, my failures or your failures, my brokenness or your brokenness. Because of what he has done, those things do not define us. God defines us, and he defines us as those who are dearly beloved children of his. That is comfort. The kingdom also comforts us because we see that God himself not only shares our grief over the evil and the injustice and perversity within ourselves, but also in the world, he not only sees it, he's going to end it. He's going to redeem it. Evil and sin will not have the last word, either in my life or the life of the world. It may seem slow in coming to me, but the promise of God is that he is bringing in a kingdom where all the things that we mourn over here are destroyed or redeemed. Even death is powerless against this kingdom. That is the good news of the kingdom. That is how he brings comfort 
in all of our mourning. All right, let's wrap this up by talking about where we go from here. As I said, these Beatitudes are good news. They're declarations of this great kingdom of God and all its joy. They're the pronouncement of a blessing. But often words, even good, even words of good news or great news, require some sort of response from us, right? Uh, think of good news like this. Congratulations, the job is yours. Or, yes, I will marry you. Or, honey, we're going to have a baby. In somewhat the same way, Jesus told us there's a response to this kingdom news. For example, in the next chapter, he tells us we should be praying that his kingdom is coming more thoroughly into this world. And then he also tells us that instead of worrying about all the things of this world, we should seek the kingdom and its righteousness. In other words, the good news of the kingdom should lead us to seek it and to pray for it and work for it. How do we do that? Four things. First, let Jesus open your eyes to what is truly valuable and what isn't. To return to the parable of the switched price tags, it's not Jesus who has switched the tags, it's the evil one. Jesus is the one switching them back to what they should be. He is the one telling us that success and achievement and wealth and status and image and power and beauty, they belong in the discount aisle. They belong in the gumball machine where you put your quarter. But humility and meekness and mourning and mercy, these are the high ticket items, or they should be. And the more time that we spend with Jesus and his word, the more, the more that we remember that. Especially if in taking time to be with Jesus and his word, we're also asking him to directly examine us, to show us when we are chasing and treasuring things that are worthless. Second, practice confession. Practice confession. Not just confess once in a while, but practice it. I've been watching the ESPN documentary on the 97 Chicago Bulls team. Some of you probably watched this. It's interesting, very interesting. I also find it attend, I also find it to be a rather annoying because of the amount of hero worship slathered on one man whose greatest distinctive was being really good at a game of sport. Uh, to me, it's over the top. But, but here's where I'm going with this. One of the things I noticed was that every day, except for an occasional rest day, was a practice day. They would spend hours going over plays and skills that they had already spent years working on. This is a team who had won five titles. This is a team that was coming off the best season in NBA history, history practicing every day. Why? Because practice is what we need to do when something's really important to us. Practicing confession simply means to take Jesus very seriously when he modeled for us and told us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, Lord, forgive us our sins. Protect us from the evil one. It's a daily thing. Just like we ask for our daily bread, we say, Lord, forgive me and protect me. Are we willing to practice confession just to make it a normal part of our day where we simply go over with God where we got it wrong, ask him to forgive us, and ask him to help change? Third, 
mourn with God over the evil of the world. Mourn with God. Turn away from the world's way of dealing with sin and seek God's. It might be helpful here to flesh out what I mean by this by contrasting it with other ways that we can respond to the fact of evil or sin within ourselves or the world. It seems to me that there are at least three bad ways that we can respond. First is minimization and distraction. Here, we, we simply don't focus on the sin in our life too much at all, right? And it's, it's easy to pull this off with entertainment or activities or possessions. Pretty soon, we really don't think about sin and moral failure that much. And the Christian version of this is kind of the flip attitudes. Well, it's all under the blood. Or it doesn't really matter since I'm saved. Or, you know, I'll sin and God will forgive. Second, second, there is mocking or making light of. We can adopt a cynical attitude towards morality or evil or sin. Our friends in the entertainment industry making money off our eyeballs, they're especially good at this, aren't they? Personal sin, evil, is mainly laughed at or laughed about. Pretty much anyone in a TV show or a movie who takes sin seriously is laughed at as a nutcase or a villain. Increasingly, the only battle of good versus evil portrayed at all is an infantile version of that we have in superhero movies or space opera fiction. Third, condemnation. This is especially good about the sin of others, not so much our own usually. We can stand on a soapbox, write letters to the editor, or more likely in our day, share social media posts about the evil of the other side and all that they're doing. You know, preachers like me, we're really good at this, aren't we? Too many of us have decided that we are in a culture war. The problem with that kind of imagery is this. We will always place ourselves on one side, the side of good and rightness, and the other people on the side of evil, the stupidity, and darkness. And when that happens, we forget, or we don't remember very well, that we are sinners, that we are fallible, that we are stupid, that we need help just as much as they. We forget to be poor in spirit, to mourn over our own sins, I'm not saying we shouldn't do anything. I'm saying the condemnation and work of that kind can only come after the morning. Too often, instead, it replaces it. That brings us to the fourth thing we can do. What do we do with the evil in our life and the evil of this world? We mourn. We mourn with God. We seek to feel the same way that God feels about the sin and evil in our life. As Jim Elliott put it, let our hearts be broken by the things that break the heart of God. Mourning means we increasingly come to hate the sin in our life and the sin in this world. We don't hate the sin in our life simply because it's a failure on our part and it makes us feel bad about ourselves. We don't hate it because it means we're not good people or we don't measure up or it makes our life more difficult in some way. Rather, like David in Psalm 51, we hate the sin because we love God and our sin is a betrayal of that love. We hate the sin of other people and of the world not from an air of moral superiority, but because we love those people. We hate the cancer of their soul more than the cancer of their body. Both bring death. Last, work with God. This has to come after again, the morning with God. It may sound strange, but what I mean is this. God has not turned his back on his creation, though he could have. 
He has not turned his back on humanity. The incarnation of Jesus, the kingdom, the cross, are the way that he allows human choice, even sinful choice, to be real, but not to be the last word. He has put skin in the game very literally. He has gotten into the boat of our humanity. He has suffered with us. I don't know about you, but that is a huge challenge for me. It's a huge challenge on how I want my life to be. I want to be comfortable. I want predictability, stability, and no drama. And I want those things more as I get older, it seems. I hate drama, and left to myself, I would insulate myself all that I could, as much as possible, to my own concerns and my own private comforts and not enmesh myself in the needs and brokenness and evil of those around me. But then I look at Jesus coming into the drama, the mess of my life, giving himself on the cross to redeem me, and I'm ashamed. I am called, we are called, to mourn with God over the evil and ugliness of this world, not simply to condemn it, but to feel it and to let that prompting, that partnership with God, that sympathy of our emotions, then purify and prompt my actions and my involvement. That's what we are called to do. And wonder of wonders, we can actually be part of the way that God brings healing, God brings comfort to the mourning, but only after we mourn ourselves. So that's how we can respond. Asking Jesus to open our eyes to what's valuable and what's not. Practicing confession, mourning with God, and then working with God. That is what I take away from these first two Beatitudes. These first two declarations of God's good news of the kingdom. This is what it means to be blessed. Not chasing after the things of this world, but this week seeking to be more humble in spirit before God to mourn with God and respond in this way. Jesus has told us, someone has switched the price tags. Are we doing our part to switch them back?